Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for November 13th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, uh, to recap last Tuesday's election, in about 20 minutes, we're going to have one of our most um, famed and knowledgeable guest that we've been so lucky to have on the Kudzu Vine, I believe, twice before when he was willing to come on the week after the election. I was elated, and Bill Snyder, longtime you know, lead CNN political analyst, uh, professor at George Mason, he's going to come on and talk with us and, and break down so many issues from um, Tuesday night and then moving forward where we go from here. So that'll be in just a bit. But until then, we're going to get you know some discussion amongst ourselves. And I'll tell you, last week or really the last week or two, it's been kind of a combination of trepidation and, and kind of reluctance, I think, about the election because of what so many you know conventional wisdom prognosticators had said. But when the folks actually started getting counting on Tuesday night, there were spots for the Republicans, but by and large – it was a better night, particularly considering it was a Democratic presidential midterm for the Democratic Party. Catherine, what were some of your um, you know, main takeaways and bright spots? Well, I think the bright spots were states like Michigan where they, you know, well, Mich- not, not many states like Michigan actually, uh, where they captured both houses and the governorship, so – uh, purely democratic state now for the most part um, and then you know I was relieved that some of my local candidates here in Georgia either won re-election or were elected but you know there were just of course disappointments in Georgia um, but overall I was happy um, disappointed in Georgia but overall I felt like democracy won yeah, I think that is a clear indication. By the way, Catherine, not to brag enough on your state of your home state of Michigan, um, Gary Peters was the DSCC chair. He did not make nearly as much news as Rick Scott did in the Republican role, but quietly, um, Gary Peters helped defend the Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate. We know that for sure after the um, win of Carolyn, Carolyn Cortez Masto. Um, but then there's a very excellent chance. I mean, I would say anybody would have to say it's at least a 50-50 chance that the Republicans, I'm sorry, the Democrats will actually expand their majority to a true 51-49 victory if um, we can pull out a runoff victory in the U.S. Senate race here in Georgia. Uh, Tim, what were some of your just initial takeaways? Well, I do admit, you know, freely to being a little bit surprised. I didn't think uh, things would uh, go quite as well as they did, and I was uh, elated, to be honest, when they did. My wife kept saying, why were you surprised I told you last summer after the Dobbs decision that this was going to happen, and you didn't listen to me? She's correct. I did not. (laughs) Um, You know, I thought that issues like crime and the economy would overcome the Democrats a bit. And I, and I thought that independents would, would vote heavily for Republicans. And those two things just never did happen. Uh, Democrats did well with Indies, which I was delighted with. Uh, and the reason, I think, was a simple one, guys. In uh, looking back, uh, you know, we talked about this. Republicans ran some terrible candidates, and 
we talked about those candidates a lot on here. Um, and uh, they, 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 they paid for it. It, it. it turned out, I think, that people are getting a little weary of this stuff about stealing elections and all this nonsense that we'll get into as we talk here. But but I I'm I, I couldn't be more delighted. Uh, well, yes, I could. If we pull out the go, the governor's race in uh, Arizona, and if we uh, also uh, win the Senate race here, I'll be more delighted. So, yes, um, I just think that the Republicans spent a ton of time, and they were successful. In working the refs, um, you, you know, they, they basically uh, put out, you know, they flooded the zone with these polls that made people say, oh, well, maybe the Republicans are doing better. And, of course, we know that the, the polls have been off because of very Trumpian Republicans. And then uh, a lot of people said, well, you know, history shows, but we do know that recently history is changing in a lot of different ways, good and bad, just because we're just in a new media, social media landscape than we've ever been in. Um, so the, the Republicans really, they spent so much time on that that did they miss a chance to connect with voters in certain places? I don't know. I don't know what the plans would have been if they decided to do that. Glad they wasted their time working the refs because the people that had deep, strong feelings about different issues – showed up at the polls, and that's all that matters. Um, another big takeaway, while Generation Z in particular can get more voters out to the polls than they did, some places where they did come out in big numbers, particularly college towns where I think a lot of those Gen Z voters are college-educated or are going to be college-educated, they came out in big numbers. Also, millennial voters are starting to really hit the point in life in which they're settled down, they might be married, they might have kids, but they might just be settled in careers, and they're showing up in bigger numbers. And between those two age groups, that are voters, and those voters are only going to increase. And that's really not a good thing for the Republicans, because if they don't figure out some way to reach those age groups, it's going to get harder and harder for them in a lot of places. Said like, Female voters between 18 and 29, Democrats were winning in sub-states like 77% of them. Just uh, an incredible number, and I think that's a, a huge takeaway there. Um, let's get into the House for a minute. Right now as it stands, neither party has a clear majority. And the way it looks, like if you project this this way and that that way, I don't know that either party's even going to get to 221. It's going to be a one to two seat majority, uh, you know, or tied. I don't know if it, I guess it can't be tied if everybody's serving, but it's going to be so, so close. Um, Catherine, what do you make of this um, really unprecedented closeness of the U.S. House of Representatives, the way it's shaken out? Well, I don't, I don't mean to be uh, – uh, what's the word? Well, I think it's interesting that we spent – that we as a country, that $16 billion was spent on this election. That's the estimate that I saw this week. And here we are at a dead heat in the House. I find that all very interesting. Um, I think it's going to be really tricky for both parties with the house being so close, you know, before the show we were talking, you know, just people being absent is going to make a huge difference, you know, voting, scheduling voting and, you know, all the, you know, rigmarole is going to be, it's going to be really um, important. The whole logistics of it is going to, of voting is going to be really important. So uh, we'll see, we'll see how it turns out over I think how many seats are we awaiting to hear on now? Nineteen. Nineteen, yeah. So nineteen more seats, and ten of them are in California. 
So we'll have to yeah. wait and see. And, and I think how that. Go ahead. No, no, I was. I, I go ahead. I want you to finish your thought, and then we'll. No, I'm finished. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I just was. Uh, you know, I think even eight of those nineteen is really the ones that they're looking at. And they've kind of got an idea on some of those even. Um, so, Tim. I, th- I know a lot of people are talking about if the Democrats lose the majority, you know, I guess clearly lose the majority, not like what's going to happen. People are already starting to kind of talk about, you know, when does the next generation, Hakeem Jeffries, take the place? Now it's like that's been put on hold for sure. And then, of course, you know, there's this been this tr- tenuous relationship between the Freedom Caucus and Kevin McCarthy. And – um, he seemed to have gotten to a place where, among others, Marjorie Taylor Greene um, had kind of endorsed as much as she can, um, uh, you know, the idea of speaker. Now, with this very weak showing for the Republicans, if they even take the House of Representatives, does this put um, just House leadership in general in doubt? Here's what we know. Nancy Pelosi was asked about her future this morning, and she said until the election is over, she will be making no announcement of any kind uh, either way, and people shouldn't speculate on it. That takes care of that. Over on the House side, McCarthy has a major problem. If they do take the House... Uh, NBC projects a 219 to 216 lead, and ABC projects 220 to 215. Either way, just by a whisker. Now, you got to have 218 votes on the floor to be elected speaker, and there are seven to ten House Republicans depending on who you talk to, that are saying no way will they vote for Kevin McCarthy. Which means he would have to give away the farm, basically, to get their vote. And it isn't just them. Then there's Trump, who also is going to be sticking his two cents worth in. And uh, I bet McCarthy now wishes he had never made that trip down to Mar-a-Lago last year. But he is between a rock and a hard place, and I don't know exactly how he's gonna uh, how he's gonna get through this. That that might be something I might ask our guest about tonight, or, or you could, or Catherine, or something. I don't know, but he he he's in a He's in a tough spot. He he needed uh, for this election to play out like they thought it was going to play out with him winning 25 seats or something. And it just uh, and and he was going to take a victory lap. Uh, if y'all saw his talk uh, late Tuesday night, it, it was shall we say a little bit on the muted side. So I I don't know what he's going to do. Well, what what do you think he's going to do? Well, and it's what the other folks do. You know, he can beg and, you know, make deals left and right. But at the end of the day, if Chip Roy, if Marjorie Taylor Greene flips on him, apparently Lauren Boebert, and, you know, we can talk about how close the call she's had, and and I guess really it's not 100% a lock yet. Uh, Not yet. It looks like she's returning. Um, She's been very critical of him. At some point, do those add up? He can't get to 218. Nancy Pelosi's at 215, 216, just because every you know, every Democrat supports her, which I think that those days are um, of the divided Democratic Party are getting less and less. So no one can get to 218. What kind of horse trading goes on? I mean, does Kevin McCarthy try to figure out how to keep all the Republicans together? Or could there be some kind of deal, and I would think Nancy Pelosi would actually get in on this, where they get Kevin McCarthy to agree to no impeachments, 
no, you know, just a whole laundry list of just radical GOP policies that a lot of these Freedom Caucus people want, that he just won't do it. Um, and they have kind of a coalition speaker just so we don't have, you know, a, a new version, a true version I, of radical I, Republicanism. I, 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 um, you know, I know we're in a new era, but normally that's just not the way this country works. Normally we don't have power sharing. Uh, the speakership in Congress, and basically that's what you're talking about, right? I, I, but that's the thing. If this group just won't get, sign on, I mean, what constitutionally happens if they have votes and it just stays stuck at 215, 215, the other seven are just, you know, off the farm or whatever? It probably would even be lower than 215 on the Republican side. Nancy Pelosi would actually probably have a plurality. Um, but it would be where there was not enough votes. These folks won't ever come on board. You know, these are folks that want to shut down the government. Would they just yeah. continually not have a speaker? Catherine, what happens out of that situation? I have no idea. But, like, let's say that does get resolved, but then how do they lead? I mean, with with a, you know, with a, such a... You know, say McCarthy or Pelosi, one or the other, actually does get elected. But then how do they – they have a bunch of disgruntled people who voted for them but really didn't support them. So then how do they lead? It's going to be a really interesting study in, you know, how – study in power – Shifting and power and, and influence. Well, you know, yeah, they're going to go into caucus, and that's when you know everything's going to hit the floor. They're going to say, "We want this, we want that, we want the other thing," and that's it. Or no votes, and it's going to be a lot. I'm telling you, it's a lot. And I imagine one of the things they are going to insist on is all these massive investigations and prop, uh, possibly some impeachments of cabinet officials. Uh, one or two of them might want to impeach Biden. They certainly will want to investigate, have an open-ended investigation of Hunter Biden and go after the Department of Justice. Those things are, you know, they're going to insist on those things, and I don't know what he's going to do about it. He can't just say yes to all of that. Because I looked, and there were so many seats where Democrats got close. There were seats that really are are seats that Joe Biden won, um, and then they flipped in places like New York and a few other places. And if the Republicans go with this, you know, slash and burn agenda, that's going to create even more openings for the Democrats to take back the House. You know, as soon as twenty twenty four, it's going to be a very short term. Majority, because if you have, if you instead of working on problems that the American people want, you work on the problem, the perceived problem of Hunter Biden, which nobody other than a bunch of, you know, Republicans that just watch Fox News all day and just obsess over things care about. Hunter Biden does not affect anybody's life other than Hunter Biden, and he's done enough trouble to his own self. Um, you know, all these other impeachments. They had the case of 1998. When it turned back on them again, when they impeached Bill Clinton, this would be seen, I think, horrifically as more political because there's so far less there. If they don't raise the debt ceiling, they shut down the government. How many times did the Republicans shut down the government and it come back to make them so politically unpopular? And and get ready for it again. It never works for them. That don't mean they won't do it. But they're probably (laughs) – yeah, I mean they're dead set on it, but um, it, it never works. And you think – I mean Kevin McCarthy, I think he's more politically astute than Marjorie Taylor Greene, than Chip Roy, than Lauren Boebert. Yeah. But yeah, they he, don't probably think he, he still's got to have the votes, David, to be speaker. Yeah. He yeah. still has to do that no matter how astute he is. When he's got seven to ten people saying, you know, I just ain't going to vote for you, 
Like I said, I don't know what he's going to do. Yeah, I, I tell you, an interesting interview I would love to see is if somebody can get an interview time with John Boehner, a person who's dealt with the mini version of what Kevin McCarthy's going to deal with with these House Republicans and his thoughts on what's going on, I think that would be fascinating because he's the only person that's really had to put up with this you know, type of situation. Well, I'm excited uh, tonight to bring in our guest for the third time just in the last how many ever decades, the political expert, uh, Mr. Bill Snyder. Welcome, Mr. Snyder. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you back. Well, we had booked this a while back, and I don't know that we expected the outcome that we got Tuesday. So I'm just going to start right off there. Um, What are the lessons we take away from the 2022 midterm? That the the voters will often do something that surprises you. I mean, that happened back in 1948 when Harry Truman got elected, even though there were three Democrats running for president, Strom Thurmond, Harry Truman, and Henry Wallace. And Truman still won. And that was a huge surprise. They stopped polling two weeks before the election and because they figured it was all over. And then, kaboom, everything fell apart. Well, that's what happened with the Democrats. They thought everyone was certain there'd be a red wave on Tuesday. And the red wave turned out to be a red ripple. Yes. And um, another question in that vein is, you know, leading up to the election, conventional wisdom, some of the polls which had been dumped in by a lot of Republican-leaning firms had started to set that narrative in place. Um, Do you think that was maybe more of a concerted effort by their party or people just latched up and it happened and they were wrong? Well, I don't think it was a concerted effort. It's hard to get pollsters to agree on anything. But they did all show a slight Republican edge in the national vote. The national vote doesn't mean anything in a midterm election, really. What they also showed, and this was the most meaningful number, was that President Biden's job ratings were close to 40 percent, and some of them were below 40 percent. When an incumbent president's ratings dip below 50 percent, his party is usually in trouble. When it gets around 40%, as Biden's was, then it looks pretty hopeless. That's what people drew their expectations from, and everyone expected the Democrats to get wiped out. Yes, and um, one more question before I pass it to um, Catherine, then Tim, and I may have more, is there's so many uh, political figures that have interesting dilemmas ever coming out of this thing, and to me, none more interesting than um, – Right now, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, what do you think Kevin McCarthy's near political future looks like? Well, it looks like that Republicans may eke out a narrow majority, but that's going to make his life very difficult because uh, with a narrow majority, the far right conservatives and look, the Republican Party has been taken over by the radical right. And the far-right conservatives will be a major constituency he has to deal with in the House of Representatives as the, as the majority leader and potential speaker. Well, that's going to split the Republicans wide open. The radical right, who have taken over the party, are going to demand that their measures get attention. They're going to demand uh, some changes in the way Congress conducts business. Uh, and they're not going to be in a mood to compromise, really. Uh, and the, the other House members know that uh, that road could be disastrous for Republicans. They saw what happened to them this year, and they want to change the direction of the party. But that's not going to be easy. There's going to be a big division within the House Republicans. Yes. Well, let's say it breaks out somewhere around 220 for the Republicans, 215 for the Democrats. And all 215 Democrats vote for Nancy Pelosi. About 210, 212 um, Republicans vote for Kevin McCarthy, but there are just anywhere between 8 and 10 holdouts that will not support Kevin McCarthy no matter what deal is offered. Constitutionally, do you know what happens out of that? Yes, Nancy Pelosi remains speaker. If she gets more votes for speaker than Kevin McCarthy or anyone else in the Republican Party gets, she remains speaker. It's an election. Whoever has the largest number of votes will win. Now, that will be suicidal 
for the holdouts, uh, presumably the far right of the Republican Party, who are looking for revenge against the party's leaders that they say steered them in the wrong direction. I'm not sure what their argument is, but if they do that, they're just committing suicide. All right. I'll tell you what, what a definitive answer um, and such a knowledge base. I'm going to pass this to Catherine, then to Tim, and I I may have a little wrap-up question or two at the end. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being with us tonight. I know it's uh, for all of us, it's been a a busy week of checking things constantly. (coughs) I'm in Georgia now, but I'm originally from Michigan. Ah, Michigan. Michigan was... Michigan really turned it around this week, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why that is. Well, because there was a lot of anger in Michigan over the abortion decision by the Supreme Court and over the radicalism that the people in Michigan, the voters there, saw exhibited among their own Republicans. Remember, there was a group of radical right activists who tried to kidnap Governor Whitmer. I mean, they tried to kidnap the governor. Uh, It was incredible. They saw extremism. They knew what was happening from what the Supreme Court did. Abortion was a very hot issue. There are a lot of militia movements that, for some reason, seem to have encamped in Michigan, northern Michigan particularly. And so it was all the extremism that Michigan voters uh, were, were voting on, they could see right in front of them in Michigan. So Michigan was one of the key Democratic states. Interestingly, there were also some states where you had a good Republican showing, not as many, but you had a strong Republican showing, of course, in Florida, where uh, oh my God, the governor Florida. got reelected by a huge margin. Uh, he carried Dade County, one of the first Republicans to, to do that. It's a majority Hispanic county. Uh, and also Ohio, which elected Vance, um, J.D. Vance, who was a Trump-endorsed candidate. Uh, and in which the Republicans did extremely well. So you had a variety of outcomes all across the country. But the net, the bottom line is Democrats did better than Republicans. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that is the bottom line. But now here in Georgia, we were very disappointed, of course, in us Democrats because we were all hoping that Stacey Abrams would prevail. But you know, it was looking was looking very difficult for her towards, I mean, it has been, we knew it was going to be a tough race and it was, um, but, but the Warnock Walker race, I just, I, I don't even know what to think about the fact that nearly 50% of our voters voted for Herschel Walker. It's hard for me to imagine, but how do you think that um, runoff will shake out? Well, I think it looks pretty good for Democrats um, because Herschel Walker has a very poor public image. He's not seen as a person of any great consistency or any strong beliefs, and it's certain, they're certainly incon- incompatible with his actions. Uh, the attention of the world would have been shown to Georgia on December 6th for the runoff if it had come to that, but it doesn't come to that. The, the decision in Georgia will still be important. Because if the Democrats can rack up an extra victory in Georgia, it means they won't have to worry as much about Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who held the right. balance of vote in uh, the Democratic caucus. He's the, he's the 50th Democrat. Um, he won't have quite as much power uh, if, the, if Georgia reelects Senator Warn- Warnock. But do you think that the, one of the things that, we, that a lot of people have been talking about is that since the Senate doesn't won't won't be dependent on that vote, do you think that Republicans stay home because they maybe can't stomach Walker? In Georgia, yes, I think that's likely to be the case. A lot of Republicans will still show up. It's a, it's an election and uh, it's important, but uh, you'll find that there's not as much excitement, not as much attention. And when there's less excitement and attention, turnout goes down. That's usually the case in a midterm election. I always say a midterm election is like a three-ring circus with no main event. There's no presidential race. <laughs> the turnout, turnout usually goes down in a midterm, but this time it was pretty high. Almost, but not quite as high as a presidential election. And, and a runoff is even that... weaker. Go ahead. I was going to say a runoff will get usually less turnout because there's, this is not a, uh, a critical event in this election season. The Democrats have already won their majority. Do you think that turnout is uh, 
is primarily due to Dobbs or or is it also anti-Trump? Both. There were two factors that drove up Democratic turnout. One was a dislike of Donald Trump because he was a main player in this. And second of all, the Dobbs decision, which frightened a lot of women, particularly younger women, uh, about the fate of the abortion issue. And in particular, the Supreme Court turned over abortion decisions to state governments. It said, we'll let the states decide how much, how much uh, abortion will be legal and how much will be illegal. And different states have different answers. Well, in that case, it meant that state elections, particularly legislative elections and elections for governor, were unusually important and brought out a lot of voters this midterm because they were voting on the future of, the abor- of abortion rights. So that was one of the factors that drove up the turnout. Thank you for that. That's, I, I, I agree, and uh, I, th- I think it was really interesting to see that uh, see that happen on Tuesday. I'm going to pass really to Tim now, and then it'll be, go back around to David. Thank you so much. Surely. Good evening, Professor, and thank you for being with us again tonight. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Like 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 David, I, I'm a little surprised that we're sitting here talking about what we're talking about in the way we're talking about it. But uh, for instance, if Raphael Warnock wins on December 6, it'll mark the first time since 1914 that no incumbent U.S. senator will be defeated. Remarkable. To go with that. Only one governor, the governor of uh, Nevada, lost. All Mm -hmm. the others won. These are statewide contests that I'm talking about here with very little or no change. Are we still an evenly split country? Is that what happened? Yes. The United States is deeply polarized. In fact, almost half of Americans expect there to be a new civil war in the next few years. That's unimaginable. Can you imagine New York and California invading Florida and Texas? It's unimaginable. But people say that that's what they expect. Well, there's a lot of antipathy. There's a lot of anger out there uh, because these are divisions over values, and they're very important to a lot of voters, to most voters, in fact. And so the divisions are real and they're deep. A lot of Americans in this election were voting for stability and continuity. They didn't want to shake things up. They weren't looking for anything radical. And in particular, they weren't looking for Donald Trump and his MAGA movement to shake up the whole country and bring on perhaps more violence. One of the key events that shaped the outcome was the attack on Paul Pelosi, the Speaker's husband. That made it clear to many Americans that there are a few people out there, maybe more than a few, we hope not, who are willing to resort to violence for political reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I've been around politics for an awful, awful long time, Professor, and, and always, always, I, I, I was taught and believed that voters vote their pocketbook first, and they just didn't do that Tuesday night, did they? No, they didn't. Their pocketbooks are pretty uh, flimsy. Uh, there's uh, hyperinflation in the country, not quite as high as it was under Jimmy Carter, but inflation always damages the incumbent president. It helped destroy Gerald Ford. Remember his win buttons, whip, whip mm-hmm. inflation now, and Jimmy Carter, who saw 15% inflation, now it's about 8.5%, or it's actually below 8% now, uh, not as high as it was then. Inflation is a terrible, terrible political problem because the only solution that we know that works when you have inflation is to slow the economy down, which is what the Federal Reserve System is doing. And when they do that, they're risking a recession. Most economists are predicting a serious recession in this country in the next year, and that has a lot of Americans worried. But they didn't vote their economic issues. They voted their political issues. They voted their values. They voted a lot of things, but, but not economics, because the economic issue, well, maybe we hope it's turning around a little bit, but there's not a lot the government can really do about inflation. Mm-hmm. Now, so did the preservation of democracy turn out to be at least as important an issue as the economy and crime and some others this year? 
I'm not sure it was as important an issue, but it certainly shaped a lot of voter, a lot of Democratic voters. There were two issues that people did not expect to have much impact, but they actually did. One was the abortion issue handed down by the Supreme Court and turned back over to the states, which meant, meant that voting for state officers became extremely important. And the other was the threat to democracy, and that was driven by Donald Trump, who refused to accept – he still refuses to accept his defeat, and he persuaded – or, or cajoled most Republican candidates to agree with him that he really didn't lose, the election of 2020 was stolen. That angered and, uh, and irritated a lot of Americans because it flew in the face of their Democratic values. So that became a very important issue. It was kind of unbelievable to them that politicians would do that. Okay. Got a couple of more questions here, and then I'm going to um, uh, pass it back to David. Okay, you're teaching a government class. Here's the way I'm setting this up, and it's not very far-fetched considering that you're a professor. A student raises his or her hand and asks, as we look at this election and the people that voted, is the torch now in the process of being passed from the baby boomers to voters under the age of 40. Is that happening now? Well, you're asking a baby boomer. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. I, I'm a baby boomer. <laughs> yes. The torch is being passed. I mean, it's natural. Uh, we're uh -huh. aging. And so uh -huh. it's, bound to be, it's bound to be passed. I can't tell you exactly how much of a political difference it will make. The only thing I can tell you is this. Younger people in the United States are losing their religion. A lot, fewer, a lot fewer of them say they go to church regularly, and a lot more of them say they have no religion at all. They're, they're irreligious, they're agnostic, they're atheist, and that's making a big difference in politics. Because the fact is, the more religious you are, not what religion you are, but how religious you are, the more likely you are to vote Republican. Republicans have become a religious party. They appeal to fundamentalist Protestants, to observant Catholics, and even to Orthodox Jews. And with religion diminishing among younger generations, we're likely to see some important changes in our politics. Hmm. The other okay. factor is education. Uh -huh. Education, there's a big difference. Uh, voters without a college degree, white voters without a college degree, were the core of Trump's constituency. And he knew it. At one point, mm -hmm. I remember it was in Nevada after a primary he's, or a caucus, uh, Trump said, I love poorly educated people. They're coming out for me in huge numbers. And they are, and they do. People, White voters without a college degree voted two to one Republican in this election. So that there's a big difference by education. We call it the diploma divide. People with college degrees vote very differently from people who didn't uh, finish college. Mm -hmm. And that is just flipped, hasn't it? I mean, yes. it used to be Republicans were more likely to, you know, college folks. That's true. Vote That's certainly true. It's turned mm -hmm. the class division in America upside down. Now I'll tell you how it works. The wealthier you are, the wealthier voters are, the more likely they are to vote Republican. That's been true for 100 years, and it's still true, though not as much as it used to be, because something new has happened. The better educated you are since Donald Trump became president, the better educated you are, the more likely you are to vote Democratic because the Democratic Party reflects the values of what Republicans like to call the educated elite. Uh, so you have an interesting phenomenon. Whenever I explain that to my students, a very smart student usually raises his or her hand and says, what if a person is well-educated and wealthy? There are a lot of people like that. What do they do? The answer is... They're pulled in different directions. They are what sociologists call cross-pressured. If they vote their economic interests because they're wealthy, they're going to vote Republican. If they vote their values because they're well-educated, they're going to vote Democratic. So you're seeing a big split among higher-income white suburban voters between the two parties where they used to be solidly Republican. Wow. One more question. Yes. In 1984... I saw Ronald Reagan, who was then 73 years old, in the second presidential debate, diffuse the age issue with his now-famous response, 
I'm not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. There was a huge uproar of laughter. Walter Mondale even almost fell off the podium laughing, and it totally diffused the age issue in that campaign. In a few days, the president will be 80 years old. Donald Trump is 76. So is age an issue now in presidential politics? Well, it is because we have a gerontocracy. Most members of Congress, uh, not everyone, but a lot of members of Congress, particularly Republicans, tend to be older Americans, Americans in their 60s and 70s. Uh, and that bothers a lot of young people. You're seeing some young people become activists simply because they don't want to be governed by an aging generation. Um, age is important in this election. I'll tell you, when you ask most voters what is the one word they associate with President Biden, the word they use is weak. Uh, I've seen polls where they ask people, do you think Biden is a strong leader or a weak leader? And overwhelmingly, they say he's a weak leader. I think that's because of his age. Age brings on weakness, and he is seen as a relatively weak president. He also doesn't have the strong views of a of a Bill Clinton or or a uh, Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Donald Trump constantly makes fun of Joe Biden as being too weak to be president. I remember he said, "Blow on him and he'll fall down." I mean, it's just that bad. Well, that's Biden's biggest problem. And his age just exaggerates that problem. And I can tell you that a lot of people that I know well who know politics and who know Joe Biden aren't certain that he's going to run for reelection. Uh, and that his age could be an issue that really d- hurts him in the, in the reelection if he does run for reelection. Why, 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 uh, one follow-up, why do voters not seem to attach the age issue to Donald Trump when he's right there in age with Biden? Because he's not the president, and he doesn't show any obvious signs of weakness. Uh, Joe Biden is a very nice guy. He doesn't. He has views, of course, on a lot of issues, but he doesn't exp- express them as forcefully as Donald Trump does, or even Bill Clinton did. Um, so that I think that uh, people. Uh, w- w- I'll tell you when the image of weakness was associated first with with Joe Biden and really began to hurt him. It was about a year ago, in August of 2021. When the United States had the humiliating experience, the horrifying experience of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that shocked and dismayed a lot of voters, including a lot of Democrats. And they thought that Joe Biden couldn't possibly be in charge of such a fiasco, uh, that it showed his weakness as a president. That's when it all began, and it hasn't really reversed itself since then. Hmm. Well, Professor, I thank you for... um talking with us tonight, and I'm going to send it back over to David for some more questions. David? Yes, just one more issue question, but it's a big one. It's the one figure that we hadn't talked about who looms large over politics for the past seven years. Donald Trump endorsed a lot of these candidates that lost, that came in second, that are currently losing, and he's gotten a lot of blame. Um, where does the former president go from here politically? Well, there's going to be a knockdown, drag-out race for the Republican nomination because everyone expects Trump to announce soon that he's going to run for president again for the third time. Uh, this would be for his second term, although he might argue it's his elected the third time he got elected because he claims he won in 2020. But uh, where does Donald Trump go from here? His image has been badly tarnished. I looked at the exit poll on Tuesday night after the voters had voted and filled out the exit polls. The, uh, I looked at the favorability towards President Biden. 57% of Americans had an unfavorable view of President Biden. Then I looked at the figure for Donald Trump. His figure was 58%. Biden and Trump were equally unfavorable. Trump does not come out of this election looking very good. He doesn't look very strong. A lot of people wish he'd just disappear. There was a hilarious front-page cartoon in Rupert Murdoch's newspaper, the New York Post, that showed <laughs> an egg-shaped Donald Trump sitting on a wall, and it defined him as Trumpy Dumpty. <laughs> yes, and, and Saturday Night Live's cold open did him no favors either. 
well, we thank you so much for coming on tonight. And so leave our listeners with this. If they want more of your knowledge and insight, where can they read you? Where can they hear you? Just share anything that you're normally doing with political insight. I write a column every two weeks for a newspaper which you can find online. I'm not even sure it's printed on paper anymore. Very few newspapers, many newspapers have stopped doing that. But it's called The Hill. It is the newspaper of Capitol Hill. Uh, it's the audience of Capitol Hill staffers, members of Congress. It's the people I want to reach. But you can find it on the uh, online uh, on the website, thehill.com, T-H-E, hill.com. I write for them. I wrote for them this morning about the election. I wrote about how the Democrats did better than expected, and about how in every election there's a candidate called expected. To win, you have to do better than expected. If you get do worse than expected, even if you win, you lose. Well, the Democrats certainly did better than expected. Trump did worse than expected, and expectations are going to shift very dramatically. We're all waiting for the rollicking contest now between Donald Trump uh, and uh, Governor DeSantis for the Republican nomination, which is really going to be a knockdown, dragout affair. Yes, we didn't even get a chance to talk, of, you know, much about Florida at all. So hopefully, some point in the future, you can come on back with us and discuss uh, Ron DeSantis, Florida, and many other topics. But we've enjoyed having you so much on so much tonight. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Thanks. Yes, thank you, sir. That was Bill Snyder of The Heel, currently also professor at George Mason, um, longtime um, political analyst on CNN, Inside Politics. Tim, back when you and I first started, uh, met each other and started working together back in 1996, do you think you and I would have had the chance to have an audience with really the number one uh, political prognosticator uh, just a few days after an election. No, it was um, it, it, it was actually 1994 that we met um, during Buddy Darden's last campaign. That is right. Uh, but uh, at the time, uh, Bill Snyder was the political director for CNN. The uh, John King now has that position, and no, I never never thought we'd be sitting talking to him uh, on something called the Internet on, on our cell phones <laughs> nearly 30 years <laughs> later. No, sir, I, I yes. never dreamed that in a million years that, that we would get an audience with Professor Snyder. <laughs> yes, and our listeners are lucky enough to hear what he has to say since he's not on CNN anymore or MSNBC or whoever. They would, I mean, if anybody, if he's willing, if anybody get him on, they would learn from that. I guess the reason I thought 96 is that's when we put gasoline on the fire and we had the Internet and we were getting all that information we never could get before off of there. But, Tim, I got another one for you. When we first met Catherine, did you think that the uh, Sunday after an election we get to hear her thoughts on Georgia? <laughs> Let's hear them. <laughs> Let's hear them. I know. We're excited. Catherine, next week, I'll go ahead and set up next week. We're going to have Niles Francis. So Tim and I are going to talk a lot about Georgia. So we're not going to – but you're not going to be here next week because Thanksgiving, you know, people deserve holidays every once in a while. But we definitely want to get your thoughts on Georgia since you're probably a lot closer to the base voters in Georgia than Tim and I are. So what are some of your takeaways? Well, you know – I think my takeaways are that we probably aren't as purple as we thought we were um, after 2020. Um, And I'm, you know, disappointed. I was, I'm, I'm a huge Stacey Abrams fan and I'm just, you know, wondering what her next steps might be and hoping that she has some, path to some kind of leadership because I think she's a she can be a very um, influential and uh, meaningful leader and I'm really optimistic about Reverend Warnock, Reverend Senator Dr. Warnock um, hoping that he can prevail in the runoff and that we can 
you know, really secure the Senate in a strong way. Um, but, you know, someone asked me, uh, I think I, I talked to my brother who lives in Brazil on uh, Wednesday, and he asked me how I was feeling, and I said, I was kind of happy and kind of sad. <laughs> I think I'm happy for the country, but I'm kind of sad for, for Georgia, though, um, you know, we we did – like I said earlier, some of our incumbent and new new candidates were elected to the Georgia House and the Georgia Senate, so that's good. But, you know, I mean, this the statewide races were a big disappointment, and I'm just not sure how we, you know, what our next steps are for 2026. Like, how do we, how do we shore this up? How do we how do we how do we win as Democrats in Georgia? So I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of thinking going on, and hopefully we'll come up with some new ways to engage voters. And but that's sort of how I'm feeling. Well, well, let me ask you about the governor's race in particular, because you know I, I want to ask questions and not give my thoughts, but obviously. For everything statewide other than U.S. Senate, the governor's race was going to be a major influencer. Typically, when an incumbent runs, it's a referendum on them. Yet when Brian Kemp gave his uh, speech Tuesday night, he said, and Stacey Abrams won't be our governor, like it was a referendum on her. Which do you think it was, the election in Georgia? Oh, I think it was a referendum on, on Kemp. I mean, I think, and I then think, he prevails. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I I think that people. I think there's a there were a couple things at play there. I think the fact that he and his people stood up to Trump uh, post 2020 election. I think that bode well with him in Georgia, uh, with among certain among certain voters. And then I also think that. Um, while I disagreed with him on almost every step he took on COVID, I think that a lot of voters, especially Republican voters, who might have been swayed if he had been a, a different governor, were sort of rewarded him for that. So I think that those, I think that the the standing up to Trump and the response to COVID were um, were definitely marks in his favor going into this election. Now, I don't agree with the COVID uh, policies that he's – but I think a lot of people did in comparison to other states. I have a question, Catherine. Apparently, one out of every ten people who voted for Brian Kemp did not vote solidly Republican down the ballot. And you know what I'm leaning toward. That's the U.S. Senate race. They turned, There were a lot of Warnock uh, Kemp voters. Was it because, in your view, that Herschel Walker was just a terrible candidate and they couldn't go there? I think there's that, and I also think that uh, I think it's a combination of uh, Warnock being a very good senator and doing a lot mm-hmm. of good things for Georgians. I think you know the insulin, uh, a lot of other, a lot of other things, and he did a good job of talking about the things that he'd done in his commercials and in his um, speaking. So th- I think that helped him. But yeah, I think. There were a lot of people who were just like Herschel Walker was just one step too far for for them to vote for. What do you think? Oh, yeah. well, well, Catherine, another question, um, and to me this becomes the big challenge for Democrats, is let's assume that Raphael Warnock wins the runoff. He's the U.S. Senator. John Ossoff's the U.S. Senator. You have two U.S. Senate seats. Things are a lot better than they were in 2008 or 10 or 12. But you still don't have much of a bench. 
how does the Democratic Party build a statewide candidate bench when um, uh, you know a lot of the candidates that ran for lower offices were were solid contenders? Um, what happens now? You know, it's really interesting you would ask me that because I will tell you that on Tuesday, um, I thought a lot about the um, commissioner of education race. Um, I mean, I thought about all, a lot of them, but I don't understand why we cannot get good, solid candidates to run for that office. We're Democrats. We're teachers. We're, you know, like... It just seems so odd to me that the last, I think, three cycles, we haven't had a good, a good candidate for that office. And uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know how we build that bench, but I think we need to start thinking about it very seriously. In fact, I'll tell you, I made a couple calls on Wednesday and Thursday to people who I know are young people who I know are interested in education or their educators. And I was like, you know, you need to think about running for office. We need to, we need to get you lined up so that, you know, four or eight years from now, you're ready to run for that. Because we need, we need strong strength in that, in that. I mean, I, you know, we need strength all across the board. But that's just one that really bothered me this week. Well, well, Catherine, I'll talk directly to that. I get GA today. Uh, the Georgia Educators Association's magazine that includes the endorsement issue. They endorsed Stacey Abrams. They endorsed Raphael Warnock. They endorsed the congressional legislation, Charlie Bailey, B. Wynn, um, Jen Jordan, up and down. They endorsed one Republican, Richard Woods. You know, Richard Woods is a public school educator that supports public schools, and his big achieve or his big policy that he came out with this past fall was for all teachers and all um, uh, family members of teachers, they can get free mental health care services. You know, it's, it's online, kind of like BetterHelp, but he puts that out. That's a very Democratic, progressive-type proposal. I wonder, first time the Republicans took office, they took a former Republican state senator, uh, Sonny Perdue, and they won. Then they took Nathan Deal, a former Democratic congressman, and they won. Richard Woods probably could never win the Republican uh, Party nomination. Could Richard Woods did what Joy Hofsmeyer almost did in Oklahoma, switch parties, become the party standard bearer, and then flip the governor's office as a Democrat? Oh, that's a really interesting thought. I, I I doubt he would do that, but guys, I don't know. Guys, I don't know. Um, I, I I got a question. Maybe y'all y'all can deal with it. We we've talked about this a little bit, but there hasn't been a statewide Democrat in constitutional office uh, since the election of two thousand six. The Republicans have been in firm control of the. Georgia legislature now for 18 years, and we've been out of power so long that we just don't have a bench. I know. We, we don't. Now, what, what, what are we going to do about that? Your bigger point is correct, but didn't um, Thurbert Baker serve until 2010, possibly Michael Thurman and possibly Tommy Irvin? I want to say that Irving it was Kathy did. Cox Irving and the Mark did. Taylor that primary did. I know Irving. I know Irving did. You're you're right about that. I know that Irving did. Yeah. I but, think those three gentlemen kind of led the party. I know Thurman. Period. Thurman had been long gone because he ran, uh, you know, that year for the uh, U.S. Senate. Yeah, that would have been 2008. Yeah, he would have run. So, but but I mean, and I think Baker because he ran in 2010 for governor. Um, and, and didn't get the nomination. Yeah, and yeah so they were, they, were, they were both long gone by but, but, but the larger but, point you know, is we've talked we've about that election. We talked about that election of 2006 where basically all of our heavyweights were wiped out, especially with Cox and Taylor running against each other. We just didn't have anybody left after that. We hadn't had nobody since then. 
And it's hard to develop a bench if you don't have a power base from which to do it, which we have not have, had. Right. Uh, yeah. I, and another problem is, is a lot of our legislators come from districts that are very democratic, and it's hard right. to go from there. Well, I tell you right. what, guys, it's it's a top of the hour. Catherine, we're going to miss you next week. We hope you good Thanksgiving dinner. And um, next week, Niles Francis. We'll see you on the Cozy Vine. Good night, guys. Not everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our.